Good morning. Get my notes out and we'll get started. The, as I said a little bit ago, I was here a few months ago and it was a great time, but I am even more excited to be here now because it is my favorite season. I love fall here and Cannon, my wife, she's sitting here, she's from Florida. And so in Florida, there are no mountains. And so it is fun for me. I grew up in Roanoke and so we're right in the Appalachian Trail, just a little farther south from here. But it is uh, my favorite time of the year. I hope it was beautiful here. It was sad that it was a little misty, uh, a little hard to see. But I can't come through these mountains, especially at this time of year, and not think, man, that's amazing, that's beautiful, and that God has a incredible, it just created an incredible view to help us glorify and be excited about Him. I hope it doesn't, pass over you. I hope that you don't get so used to living in, among splendor that it doesn't stir your heart to rejoice in him. Um, I've also known, because I'm friends with Justin, I, I kind of stay up to date with you guys a little bit and talk to you. And I know you've been studying the book of Galatians for a while, ever since he's been here. So three months you've been in the book of Galatians. We're going to take a little break this morning. We're going to, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20. But what you're going to find is that it's still a really similar theme, right? Because in the book of Galatians, you've studied all about the gospel. And, and the main thing that you've been learning in the book of Galatians is that salvation comes by faith. It's a gift of grace, and there's no works that you can do to earn salvation. But the interesting thing about Galatians, at least when I read Galatians, is that these people in Galatia, they knew that. But they still fell away. Remember in, in chapter 1, he says, well, he says, you have, how, how does he say, let me read it. He says, you knew the gospel, but you have so quickly deserted it. And then in chapter 3, he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Why have you left this gospel? And as I really think about it, it's, it's really a stunning thing. Because think about what the gospel that Paul proclaims is. The gospel that Paul proclaims is I'll actually read from Romans this time. It says, For while you were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone would dare even to die. But God shows his love in this, that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. The message of the gospel is that you can't earn salvation, but you don't need to because God loves you so much that he would die on your behalf even though you were his enemy. Even though we would sworn to rebel against God in every way. God says, I want to come, become a, a human on earth so that I can die in hopes that this amazing show of love will stir your heart so much that you'll think, I have to know this God. I have to know the God who would love me even though I don't love him. To me, that's an amazing story. But think about what the Galatians believe. They said, no, no, salvation has to be about works. There has to be something in it. Sure, God loves us, but he loves us because we were good. We earned God's love. They said, yeah, God loves us. That's a neat story. But the reason God loves me is because he ought to love me. The reason God loves me is because I've done good enough. And in my mind, this is who wants that gospel? 
What a sad exchange. You've traded the glorious, the greatest love story in the history of the world for something that says, yeah, God loves me, but he ought to. Because I'm good. And that's what the Galatians have traded. What I want, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because I want to deal with the possibility that even though the Galatians should have known better, they traded this amazing gospel for something less. And that we may have done the same thing. I actually teach a class at the seminary where I met Justin. I teach a class on how to study the Bible, and we walk through the book of Jonah. Uh, the, the, the students that are in my class is usually their first year. They're just learning to study the Bible, and so we'll walk through Jonah, and we'll talk about what is Jonah all about. And most of the students get Jonah kind of confused. Their first days in, they'll remember some of the major amazing things about Jonah. They remember that God calls Jonah to be a missionary. And they remember that Jonah runs away from God. They remember that he runs, he gets on a boat, he sails out, and that God brings a storm. And they remember that God talks to the sailors, they end up throwing Jonah overboard. And they remember that God sends his big fish, and that miraculously God saves his life in the belly of a fish for three days. And that God, they all remember God sends Jonah back to Tarshish. And that it's in Tarshish that Jonah gets a second chance. And he shares the gospel. And most of them remember that in Tarshish, these people who were the most vile people in the world at the time, hear the story and they repent. And they say, oh no, we've done bad. And they tear their clothes and they put on sackcloth and ashes. And they say, God have mercy on us, we're sinners. And that's where most of the students kind of stop in this story. They think this story is all about how God is gracious and he loves missionaries. And most of the students, in my class at least, have forgotten all about chapter 4. In the fourth chapter, in the very last chapter of Jonah, you see that Jonah is not happy. Jonah actually throws kind of a bit of a temper tantrum because he knew that he needed God's grace when he was swallowed by a fish, but he's really upset that God would show grace to Tarshish. I mean, I'm sorry, to Nineveh. Tarshish is where he's fleeing to. That why would God show mercy to these evil people of Nineveh? Let me read to you a, uh, a section from the end of Jonah 3 and the beginning of Jonah 4. It says, When God saw what they did, and they being Nineveh. So when God saw what Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And Jonah was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God, and you're merciful, and you're slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you would relent from disaster. And therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Is that strange? What happens to a missionary's heart that he is so displeased and angry and bittered about grace that he would rather die than tell someone how God has radically loved them and would save them? I bring this up again because if the Galatians could do it and if Jonah could do it, then it's very possible that you and I could also start to despise God's grace. Even though we say that we're saved by grace, 
Grace can become a ho-hum, sad thing. And even over time, we can start to think that we've earned it and we somehow deserve it. And we're upset that other people will get grace when we've done everything right. And so that's why I want to turn to Matthew 20. I want to see what does Matthew 20 say to us to help us understand grace and get excited about it again. Um, if I could boil the whole sermon down into one sentence, the sermon would go like this. It's the reward of the gospel brings maximum joy when we realize that we don't deserve it. The reward of the gospel brings maximum joy when we realize we don't deserve it. The Galatians' problem is they thought they deserved it and they grew to despise God's mercy. Jonah thought that he deserved it, and he grew to despise God's mercy. But the reward of the gospel brings the most joy when you think, I don't deserve it. Uh, The passage we're going to look at this morning is pretty long. And so instead of reading it all up front, what we're going to do is read it as sections as we go through it. But I think it would be helpful if I give you a little bit of a roadmap so you can know how we're working through it. We're going to really break it. I'm not going to start at the parable. I'm going to go back a little bit and look at the context. The Jesus story makes a lot more sense when we know why he's telling the story. So we're going to start first by looking at Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. This is in chapter 19, starting in verse 16 we'll read. And we're going to see that Jesus is basically telling us and teaching us that salvation is only by mercy. It's a miracle that God does that we cannot earn. And that's the point, is that salvation is a miracle. The second section we'll look at is verses 27 through 30. That's the end of chapter 19. And you're going to see that Peter still doesn't get it. Peter's frustrated. Why in the world is salvation by mercy, especially in light of all I've done? So Jesus is going to address Peter's problem. And then you're going to see that he addresses it most with with this big sentence that kind of characterizes the whole thing. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. So our final section where we're really going to camp out is this parable. And this is in chapter 20, verse 1 through 16. And it's going to teach us that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And it's going to say, what does that mean? And ultimately, it's going to tell us that we'll be most excited about the gospel when we realize we don't deserve it. When we realize that we're the last, not the first. All right, let me pray one more time before we get started and we'll jump right into the text. Dear Lord, it is an honor to be able to open your word to learn from it, to learn your mercy and your grace for us, and also your expectations from us. Soften our hearts so that we're willing to listen to your message, and we're willing to obey you, and mostly that we're willing to be excited about the love that you've shown to us. Thank you again. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles... Uh, You can open them to Matthew 19. We'll start in verse 16. Uh, If there's Bibles in your pews, if you don't have one, I've printed out the text on my paper, but let me help you with page numbers just in case that would be helpful. Matthew chapter 19. You'll find that on page 696 if you want to read along. And it'll probably be helpful to read along because we'll be interacting a lot with the text. It reads like this. And behold, one came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? One, there is that is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, the rich young ruler says to him, which? Jesus said, you shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. The young man looked at him and said, all these I've observed. What do I still lack? What do I still need to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. So all that you have, so all that you possess and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So Jesus says to his disciples, truly, I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they said, well, who can be saved? But Jesus looks at them and says, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. There's a long section. And to be honest, it deserves a whole sermon on itself. Uh, by itself, but we're, we're not going to. We're going to go move fast because we're just trying to understand what's the point here and how is it preparing us for this parable we're going to get to. And there is a point. The point is the very last sentence when Jesus says, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It seems kind of simple, but to be honest, most of us have or at least have heard people misinterpret this passage. They just get a little bit confused. And the way that you know if you're misinterpreting this passage is if you read about the the rich young ruler and you think he wasn't willing to give enough. He had this idol, and if he would have just given up this idol, then he could have got into the kingdom of heaven. I've given up my idols, so I get into the kingdom of heaven. If you think that the rich man didn't do enough and you can do enough, then you've missed the point. Because the point is, it is impossible to get into the kingdom of heaven. You know that you get the point is if you listen to the story, you have the same reaction that the disciples had. If you read it and the disciples say, well, what in the world? Then who can get into heaven? And Jesus says, with men, it's impossible. No one can get into, the, into heaven because of what they do. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's the point. The point is that salvation only comes by grace when God will do the impossible in your life. The point is that salvation is a miracle. It's not something you've earned. It's something that God's done for you because you couldn't do it yourself. That's the point. You cannot do enough to earn God's favor, but God gives his favor so lavishly, so generously, that he'll give it to you even though you don't deserve it. That's the point. Peter listens to it, and he doesn't exactly understand. So our next section that we're going to look at is how Peter reacts to this sermon. What you're going to see is that he thinks salvation still somehow, some way, salvation has to be tied to works. Let's just read it together. I'll start in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, Lo, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man shall sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones and you'll judge the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first shall be last, and many who are last shall be first. One thing's absolutely for certain is that Peter still isn't getting it, right? So there's, there's two possibilities. Why has Peter posed this question to Jesus? Why does Peter want to know if he's done enough? And the first is perhaps he just didn't understand that salvation's a miracle. Perhaps he watched this rich young ruler come in, and God said, Jesus says to him, give up everything you have and follow me, and then you'll get into the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter says, I've done that, right? I've given up everything. I've left my job, and I've left my family, I've left all my money, and I've followed you, Jesus, so is that enough? It's perhaps that's what's going on in, in Peter's mind. And I think it is, at least to some degree, but there's also something else. And what you'll see is when we're getting to the parable in the next section, that Jesus is going to address this as if Peter seems a little bitter. But Peter has a little twinge of bitterness in his question. And so what we have to assume is that it's not that Peter just simply wants to know, has he done enough? But that Peter's trying to tell Jesus, certainly I deserve it. If anyone deserves it, certainly Peter. He's left everything. To go follow Jesus. And frankly, Jesus, it's a little offensive that you don't recognize how much I've done for you. Jesus offers a response to him, and it's really a two-part response. The first part of the response is just trying to encourage Peter. Give him some assurance and to, to help him not be freaked out or despairing. The second is a warning. First part, he says to Peter, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, you're going to receive a hundred times this. He says, trust me, Peter, it's worth it. There is nothing that you have given up in your life that you will not feel is totally worth it. It's worth it. It's a hundred times worth it. No sacrifice you will ever make for the kingdom of God, will you look back up and will you look back on it and say, "I don't think it was worth it." The kingdom is amazing. God is amazing, and that's where you want to be. It's worth it. But then the second part of Jesus' response is that it is worth it, Peter. But you have to understand that your question shows me that you're getting your wires crossed here. This is because you won't enjoy the kingdom of heaven unless you understand this. That the first will be last and the last will be first. So he starts off with Peter, be encouraged. There's something to be happy about. But the second part is you won't be happy about it until you realize the first will be last and the last will be first. So let's move to our third section. We'll ask, what in the world does it mean that the first will be last and the last will be first? What is Jesus warning to Peter? Take a sip of water before we move to it. You can look at chapter 20. That's where we'll start. I'll read it. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I'll give it to you. 
So they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And then about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one's hired us. So he came to them and he said, You go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the house. I'm sorry. Now, when the first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the householder. They said, these last worked only an hour, and you gave them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work for the entire day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. The householder said, did I not agree with you for just a a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Sometimes we read stories that Jesus tells and we think, that's a long time ago. How does all this work? But this story, interestingly... This is still a lot like what happens today. I actually looked online uh, while I was preparing this and saw that day labor, there's about 100,000 day laborers that are in the United States right now. Day laborers are people who they don't have a long-term contract every day. They show up. The, The most common place to find a day laborer is at Home Depot. They show up every day hoping somebody will come and hire them for that day. And that's kind of what this is. Day laborers... The, the article I read said, at Home Depot, for instance, if you bring up your truck early in the morning, depending on which Home Depot, but most Home Depots in major cities, if you roll up with your truck early in the day, your truck will be swarmed with day laborers, with people who want a day's work. And so they said what they do is they'll get out of their truck and they'll sort through the people and they'll find the best laborers that they can find, guys that seem young and strong and healthy, guys that they think are going to be able to work with a shovel all day long without getting too tired, and they're going to pick out some of these day laborers to come with them and work. And they said, this one guy said, there's a language barrier for some of them, but even regardless of the language barrier, when he shows up with his truck, these guys don't ask what kind of work it is. They don't ask how much they get paid. They just want to be the first ones in the truck because they want that job. And this is similar. It seems similar to what is going on in Jesus' story. There's these day laborers, and they just want a job. The day laborer, uh, the house owner in Jesus' story goes out and instead of just getting one group of laborers, he goes repeatedly through the day. He starts at 6 o'clock in the morning and he gets his first load of laborers and he realizes there's a lot of work to be done. So he goes back every three hours. He goes back at 9. He gets more. He goes back at 12. He gets more. He goes back at 3. He gets more. He goes back again at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and he gets more laborers and then the job's done at 6 o'clock. So he's gone out and he's got five loads of workers, some that have worked all day long, starting at 6 in the morning and have worked a 12-hour shift. And the last have worked a one-hour shift. Before we go on, it might be helpful to make sure we understand who is representing who in this story. You, you may have already realized this, but the house owner, the master of the house, representing God in this story. Right? God is the one that owns the vineyard. 
God's the one that calls the laborers. And what you see, there's, a, there's several things you can see about God, but the most prominent is that this is a wildly generous God. Wildly generous. I mean, so generous that that's really the whole problem with the story, is that what you gave people who have only worked an hour an entire day's wage, a large group of people that worked for an hour an entire day's wage? I mean, he's so generous that that's what seems to get him in trouble in this story. He's wildly generous. The second group of people are the day laborers. They're the laborers, and they represent Christians. All Christians of all time. They represent people like Peter and the disciples, but they also represent people like you and me. We're the laborers. We're the people that are called in to service for God. Any of you who know Christ as your Savior today, you're a laborer. But there's a difference between different kinds of laborers. And this is why the laborers are the most important people in this story. Certainly, in reality, God is the most important. But this story is all written to make you ask yourself, what kind of laborer am I? And God says, Jesus says, there's two kinds of laborers. There's the first laborers, and there's the last laborers. The first laborers are what we might call the deserving. They're the laborers that worked a 12-hour shift. Right? They're the people who have done the most work. And anyone reading the story would think they deserve the most in this situation. Think of an analogy. If, if all of Christianity was a classroom, right? And God is the teacher in this classroom. And every single Christian was there. The, the deserving, the firsts, are the people who would have been the straight-A students. Right? They're the ones who are valedictorians. They're the ones who are National Honor Society. They're the ones who never get a B. The first are the people that you know deserve what they're getting because they've worked hard for it and they're special. I mean, these are the great people. These are the firsts. The other group of people are the lasts, right? In, in the story, there are five, but Jesus says it, it boils down to are you the first or the last? And the last are the exact opposite of the firsts. If we keep with the schoolroom analogy, the first, they'll get all A's. The last have trouble getting their name on their paper. The last are the people who they leave class and they think, I didn't pass that test. I'm not going to pass this grade. Everybody knows, if you're a last, you know, I don't deserve to pass here. Remember I told you about how at Home Depot you'll drive up and you'll kind of pick your laborers? And every worker, every guy on, on this forum anyway, says, I, I go and I strategically look for who's the youngest, who's the strongest, who looks healthy. Those are the people that get picked first. The people who get picked last are the people who you look at and you're like, they're not going to be able to work all day with a shovel. They're too old or they're too sick. They're not strong enough. The last are the people that they know it and everybody else knows that they don't deserve to be on the workforce and they know it because they're last. And here's the weird thing about the story is that Jesus is saying, be a last. Right? Isn't that what this paradox says? The first will be last and the last will be first. So you want to be last so you can be first. But why in the world would, it, would the household owner want lasts? What's the benefit of being a last? We know for sure that Jesus is not 
saying that you want to be sinning all the time. That he's not encouraging us to be rude or to not love people. He's not acting, asking us to go do all the things that make you look last. Instead, he's asking for a mind shift change. He's asking for you to see yourself as the last. I think this will be really clear as we look at back at the story. I'm going to start at verse 8. And we'll see what is the mindset of the first and the last. Verse 8, it says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. So the homeowner started with the last, and he's paid them an entire day's wage for just a single hour of work. So think about how these guys must have felt. Whoa. An entire day's wage for an hour's work? There was a, I don't know if any of you are on Facebook. I'm sure some of you are. But sometimes people put videos up on Facebook. And I saw one this week of a guy who went into, him and his friend would go to different restaurants. But especially restaurants like um, IHOP and like little breakfast joints. And they would give their waitress a $200 tip. And they hid their camera in there to watch the waitress's reaction. And the waitress is going through. And if you've been to IHOP, I mean, sometimes you get some friendly people, but like it's not a fun place to work. It's a lot of work for a little bit of money. But this waitress comes up and she sees the $200, and the waitress is always, I mean, flip out. You see, they're crying, they're bawling, they're just so excited. One waitress dropped everything and she just runs out the door and finds the guys in the parking lot and she's hugging them and thanking them. $200 for waiting on you. The lasts are the ones that are so wildly excited about this gift. It's like finding a $200 tip when you work at IHOP. How in the world did I get this? I didn't deserve it. And it's wild, generous, and exciting. Contrast that with the firsts. Let me read in verse 10. Now when the first came, they thought they'd receive even more. But each of them only got a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the householder and they said, These last only worked an hour. You've made them equal to us who have burned the bo- borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You see, they received the exact same wage that the, that the last did, but there's just no joy. They're grumbling. Didn't you know I deserve more than this? See, the difference between the first and the last or the ability for them to receive the gift and love it and be excited about it. And the only difference is because the last didn't think they were going to get it. The last thought, I don't deserve this. And the first thought, of course I deserve it. I deserve this and more. And so they can't enjoy it at all. And that's why God says to Peter, or Jesus is saying to Peter, if you want to enjoy this gift... This gift that I've told you is worth it. It's worth everything. You can't enjoy it unless you understand that you're a last. You can't enjoy it unless you understand that you don't deserve it. At this point, we've already seen the main idea of the text, or at least we're starting to see it, is that the reward of the gospel brings maximum joy to the people who realize they don't deserve it. After Jesus tells that part of the story, he concludes with the homeowner's response, or the, the landowner's response to these people, to the, la- to the firsts who now are last. 
I'll read it in verse 13. He says, but he replied to them and he said, friend, I know I, uh, he says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? The homeowner is kind of becoming indignant because he realizes that these firsts who aren't happy with what they've got are accusing him of not being just. They're accusing him of not giving them all they deserve. And he's mad. He says, I've given you all you deserve. The exchange reminds me a lot of a, another exchange in the Old Testament. It's in Ezekiel chapter 18. I'll, I'll read a little bit of it to you, and you'll see the parallel here. The word of the Lord came... This is Ezekiel 18, chapter, or verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, being Ezekiel, who was a prophet for God. And the word said this. It said, What do you mean by repeating the proverb concerning the land of Israel? The proverb says, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. Let me explain the parable that they're quoting. The parable says, if you eat sour, the father eats sour grapes and the son's teeth are set on edge. Which is kind of a reversal of expectations, but this is what the, the people of Israel are saying should be true. If you eat a, a lemon or a sour grape, it's your face that gets, you know, you can't handle the sour grapes. But they're saying, no, when the father eats it, it's the son and it's the whole family. There's consequences for everybody when the father eats the sour grapes. Interestingly, you would think they would say, but have mercy, God. But they don't. The reason they're saying this is because they're angry that God isn't executing justice on the sons. As you read on the story, you see these people think, look, this guy has lived a horrible life. But his son isn't suffering. And I've done everything right. And my son doesn't have any more than this guy's son. They're saying, God, if you're going to be just, you've got to remember that his dad or his granddad is of bad generations. And they want justice. They can't be happy for the son who's being blessed by God. They only want God's justice. And, and God reminds them, he says, look, They're my people. The fathers are mine. The sons are mine. And when I want to save them and redeem them and give them my grace, that is my mercy. And you can't begrudge it. Let me read to you the the very end of the, the chapter. In verse 29, he says, The house of Israel says, The way of the Lord isn't just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that aren't just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one of you according to your ways, declares the Lord. He says, Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. He says, Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in death of anyone, declares the Lord, and live. And he says, Declares the Lord. So he says, Turn and live, repent. And this is the whole message of this parable. God is just. But when you think you deserve more than you do, when you think that you deserve God's grace, you can't enjoy it. 
And so what Jesus is saying to Peter and what Jesus is saying to me and to you is that if you're a first, you need to repent. You need to say, I'm not a first. I'm a last. There's a question I want to address before we close. It may be in our, in our heads. And that is, can a first be in heaven? I mean, is it possible that we're Christians and we're, and we're firsts? I want to caution you. There, there, is a, there is a line in there where Jesus says, or the landowner says, take your money and go. And so some people will say, take your money means, well, he's still giving them the reward, but it says, and go. So maybe he's kicking them out. So what's the case? Can you be a first and be a Christian? I think we need to remember that a parable isn't meant to teach everything that you could possibly connect it to. Instead, a parable is a specific story with a specific point. And the specific point is that you cannot enjoy the grace and the the gifts of God, unless you realize you don't deserve them. But there are two stories that have just preceded, and we've already looked at the context, that help us answer this question. Can I be a first and still be a Christian? The first story is the rich young ruler. Remember he came to God and he said, I've done everything. What else do I have to do? And he says, if you want to earn heaven, then you have to do everything perfectly. You have to sell everything you have and follow me. And he says, bows his head and he walks away and he's sad because he thought he was a first and thinking he was a first kept him out of the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't willing to accept grace. He wasn't willing to beg Jesus for mercy. Being a first kept him from the kingdom of heaven. So if you're a first, that's dangerous. But the second first, the second person who thought he was a first was Peter. And we know Peter's in heaven, but he still thinks he's a first. And so Jesus' warning to Peter in this case is being a first, even if you're a believer, so obviously it's possible, if you're a first and you're a believer, it's still going to ruin this whole ride for you. You cannot enjoy the promises of God if you think you deserve them. Being a first ruins it for you. On a side note, um, Well, actually, let's, I want to talk for just a second about Peter's dealing, his whole life of dealing with being a first or a last. You guys have worked through Galatians, so if you go back in your mind to Galatians chapter 2, you might remember that Paul goes and he confronts Peter because Peter's a first. Peter thinks that the people who deserve the most special spot in the church are the people who were the Jewish people. They've kept all the laws. They've done all the right things. So the Jews deserve the best spot because they were the first in the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul goes to him and says, Peter, that's first thinking. The church isn't made up of first. The church is made up of lasts. The church is for the people who don't deserve it. It's by grace we're saved. It's through faith. It's not of any works we've done. The church is made up of lasts. So you see Peter came in being a first. But the interesting thing is Peter goes out being a last. Because he says to Paul, well, you know what, you're right. Think about Peter's position. Peter was a, a true disciple who walked on earth, was one of Jesus' original twelve. He was the rock that the church was built on. Peter was the head honcho of Christianity. 
And Paul is this upstart who never even met Jesus and didn't have really any strong connections with the church in Jerusalem. And he comes up to Peter and he challenges them. And the head of the church in Jerusalem submits to and apologizes to and makes it right with the guy who's below him. So you see that Peter was a first, but Peter repented and Peter becomes a last. I think that's a story that needs to be true of you and me. Is that we need to be on a progression. Most of us, if we're honest, will admit there's some first thinking in our hearts. But we want to be like Peter and say we're moving toward last thinking. I don't know if you're familiar with how Peter died. Peter lived in Rome uh, toward the latter parts of his life. And in Rome, there was an emperor named Nero who's famous for killing Christians. And he killed Peter. And he ordered that Peter be crucified. He says, you talk all this stuff about Jesus, and Jesus was crucified, so I'm going to do the same thing to you. And he says he's going to crucify Peter. So Peter says, famously recorded, that Peter says, I am not willing to die like Jesus. And so Peter says, if you're going to crucify me, Crucify me upside down, because I'm not even worthy to die in the same way Jesus died. What a cool picture of last thinking. I'm not even worthy to die like Jesus died. So he's crucified upside down, because now Peter, as he's dying, realizes it's only by mercy that I've even been willing, I'm even able to die for Jesus, is God's mercy. What a change of thinking Peter's had. And that's the kind of change of thinking that I'm hoping that we'll have. The central question is, are you a first or are you a last? Do you consider that you deserve mercy or do you consider that you are undeserving of mercy? If you're a first, what you've been studying in Galatians will sound dry and unexciting. Who wants a message of grace when you don't need grace? But if you're a last, it's the only hope that there is, is that God would save me even though I don't deserve it. So assuming in here that most of us have at least some sense of first in our minds, assuming that we recognize I'm not humble. I don't always feel that I'm undeserving. I often feel like I'm deserving. How do we respond? The first most important thing you do is you repent. The same thing we saw in Ezekiel. You repent. And repentance is the very process of saying, I'm last. Right? Repentance is saying, oh, I have been wrong. I have been thinking I'm first and I'm sorry. I was wrong. I don't deserve your mercy. And you ask God to work a miracle in you. To change your heart and to make, give you a last heart. A person that thinks I don't deserve it. So repentance is the very first step. And saying, I'm a last. I thought I was a first, but I'm not. I'm a last. So be willing to repent. The second thing that I think helps us become a last when we're a first is to reflect on what the gospel is and what Jesus has done to us. We sang a song a little bit ago. Um, Alas, and did my Savior bleed is uh, the original title. I, I can't remember what the title was this time. We just sang it, At the Cross. So, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, or At the Cross. It is, in my mind, one of the hymns that best explains or states the way a last person thinks. So, I'm going to read the hymn to us, and we'll think, does this state how I think? 
And if it does, or if it doesn't, dwell on it. And let this become the words that motivate and change our hearts. It says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done He groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. And he asks, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to, te- mine eyes to tears. We're going to have a time of invitation right now. And we'll sing together. And as we're singing, have in your mind, am I a first or am I a last? And if you're a first, beg God for mercy. Remember that you were the worm that caused him to go to the cross. And let your heart overwhelm in joy that he would be willing to die for you.